like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in each episode of this podcast, I'll look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Um, and in this episode, we will be beginning a look at Dick's novel from 1967, entitled The Zap Gun, or sometimes called, I think it was originally called Project Plowshares. Uh, this is one of his more fascinating novels. I, I don't think it's as commonly read as some of his other later 1960s novels, such as such as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in this particular novel, especially about Cold War politics. I think the the main theme of this novel, it comes in part from, it's kind of a tribute to like the comic book culture of the 60s that Dick came out of and the, the kind of sci-fi magazine culture of, of that era. That's part of what's going on here. But I think it's also a reflection on Cold War paranoia and particularly Cold War, kind of the arms race and what it actually meant, right? Because in those areas, in that era, both sides of the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States were investing in all these weapon systems and making better and better bombs, but never really using them, right? At the same time, you had this kind of development of a consumer culture. And in this novel, Dick throws those together in a really fascinating way with this concept of plowsharing developed weapons. So I'm going to get into that, but I wanted to look at a, a couple emails first. Uh, they're both from from Richard Richard uh, Fahey, who is who often comments on my my posts. He used to comment on the Podbean page itself, but they switched that over to a Facebook system, I think, and and or no, they took it away from the Facebook system, and now you have to register, and and he didn't want to do that, so. Uh, we get his email comments. And one of these goes back to Dr. Blood Money, and here's what he wrote. Quote, this is so brilliant, even for him. The imaginative skill manifest in bringing this novel to life is nothing less than amazing. This is probably the most mainstream of his sci-fi novels. He created a realistic world in people, to an extent that it doesn't feel like a post-apocalyptic landscape. It has been underappreciated even by me. I wouldn't hesitate to place it among his top eight novels. It seems unusual for him that through the development of the plot depends on two untypical sci-fi stereotypes for Dick, an astronaut and an insane scientist, yet it appears that the equally familiar sci-fi trope couldn't have been written as it was without them. They are as human and vulnerable as everyone else in the novel, though Bruno Belfgeld's paranoia recalls the situation in Time on a Joint, that it might be true. End quote. So, yeah, good comments. I, I, I agree with with all of those. Um, I didn't really talk much about the tropes in my review of it, the trope of the mad scientist. Um, I, I like that trope a lot, and, and I, I recently reread Stephen King's recent novel, Revival, and I think that's a really great kind of revisitation of, of the mad scientist uh, trope as well. But yeah, it's not something Dick does a whole lot. You know, I, I, I was so obsessed with this idea of the technocratic class and, and Boothgeld as a model, the technocratic class, that I didn't even think of the straight up mad scientist angle to it. And then he sent me an email about the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. He said, I've always been quite fond of this one, which is 
probably why I'm more critical of it than most of his books. It's a mystifying in its complex brilliance. The thing that has been fused with Palmer Eldritch, though probably too choosy on the Proxer's world, is an avatar of God, but is unlike the benign one Anne Hawthorne believes in, which refutes her beliefs. It's of an uncertain nature and morality that opens their minds to the truth. It is this entity that they want to defeat, not Palmer Eldritch. Killing him will not rid them of it, but accepting the truth of their existence and bonding and empathy probably will. So that's the email. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. You know, one thing I like about Richard's comments on my podcast and previously on my blog is that he, he does kind of get to the, the metaphysical aspects of these novels a little bit more than I do because I'm, I'm so grounded in the... I'm so obsessed with the kind of the politics of, of these works that sometimes I don't, you know, I, I miss what a lot of people see in them, which is the religious aspect of it and the philosophical ap- aspects. You know, I'm, I'm so materialistic about these things. So anyways, that's those some great comments, and, and I'll read his other letters when he sends them. So anyways, the Zap Gun. Zap Gun, 1967, originally called... Originally appeared in Worlds of Tomorrow, issues of November 65 and 66 under the title of Operation Plowshare. So that's why it has a copyright in 1965. But it was published as a book, The Zap Gun, in 1667. The novel begins with a, a report. And here's what the report says. The guidance system of the weapon item 207, which consists of 600 miniaturized electronic components, can best be plowshared as a lacquered ceramic owl, which appears to be unenlightened only as an ornament and informed knowing. However, that the owl's head, when removed, reveals a hollow body in which cigars or pencils can be stored. Official report of the UNW NASSEC Board of West Block, October 5th, 2003, by Concomity A. End quote. So this is, we learn a lot in this little passage. The first is that we learn that weapons are developed and then what are called plowshared, which means they do their turn, you know, like the old saying, right? Swords into plowshares. So they're plowshared, turned into consumer goods that often don't seem to have a very much connection to the original device, right? Some technology, some aspect of that technology in the weapon is then transformed into a, into a, a consumer good that's that's mass marketed so the weapons are made they're advertised to the people they are demonstrated to the population as a powerful nasty weapon in fact there's no such thing we're reminded of the penultimate truth right where the population the masses think there's a war going on but there in fact is no war at all it's simply um simply the the media projecting uh, the, the war going on and and so we actually we're going to see where the government agents create you know, test use of these weapons on androids, you know, saying these are real humans and this is just to show that these weapons are real, but in fact they're immediately, before they're even produced, plowshared. Now who does the plowsharing? Well, it's a group of people called comcomities. Com, com, so it's spelled C-O-N-C-O-M-O-D-Y. So commodity is certainly the root of that word, it seems. Now, who are these? Well, these are chosen from the population as a whole. And they are chosen as because they're the most typical consumer based on their consumer patterns. So we're reminded of the fact that China is going to be getting a citizen score based in part on consumer habits and people who consume properly, buy the right things, buy in the right amount, will get a better credit score, better social credit score than people who buy the wrong things, right? There's other aspects of it too, but 
Um, here we have some kind of surveillance state watching people's consumer behaviors and those who consume at the most normal, the most you know, average, will then be chosen because they're the ones supposedly who are best able to figure out what the best way to take these weapons and plowshare them. They're a secret board of people. I think there's five of them, right? Now, who, what's this NADSEC board of West Bloc? Well, West Bloc is the Western powers in this kind of continuing Cold War culture, and NADSEC is, is the government, um, the security state there. So that's, that's what we learn in that opening passage. That tells us a lot about the themes of the novel already, that it's, it's about weapons being made basically as a way to make people feel, feel good about their security. In fact, there's really no, no war going on at all. So right away we meet our main character, uh, Lars Powderdry, which is a kind of an interesting name because he's a weapons developer. And of course, dry powder is a dangerous thing on the battlefield. Right? You want your powder dry. Wet powder is useless. So he's got a name that connotes the potential of violence and the potential of, of, of incredible explosive power. He runs a company called Mr. Lars Incorporated. Now, although it sounds like it's a private corporation in, in business, and it, it sort of is, his main job is he's the prime contractor for the government. And what he does is he designs the weapons. Now, how does he do this? Well, he does it in a very weird way. He does it by meditating, imagining himself in, you know, goes in some kind of trance state. And when he comes out of it, he has these, these, you know, ideas for weapons, these, these designs. And then he can translate them into design schematics, send them to the government. The government will then make the prototypes. The prototypes will be tested and shown off and then immediately plowshared by the commodities. So that's the system we have here and that's why Lars powder dry is so important. He's the only person who does this and he does it by taking, you know, going into this meditative sort of state where he can kind of grasp from like the cloud almost these weapons designs. And it's not entirely clear in, early in the novel if he's grab stealing them from Peep East, which is this, the, the Soviet side of things, Peep East, or if he's, you know, People's East is the, what it breaks down to, the new speak. What we find out later on is he's actually kind of pulling these from from comic books from the past. So a lot of these are really like zap guns and wild sci-fi uh, weapons that you might see in a comic book, but have maybe not any realistic purpose. It doesn't really matter because these are weapons that are never going to be used. It's all about showing the people that they're safe and that there's weapons backing them. So we learn a lot of this in the first chapter. Lars Powder Dry is very depressed at this point in his life. And he's depressed for a couple reasons. One, he, he's frustrated that all his work goes to nothing. His weapons are immediately plowshared. And he's frustrated with that. He, he doesn't feel his job has much purpose. And he's also frustrated that by plowsharing, and this is such a public process, the plowsharing, that people seem to know that these weapons aren't really being used. And he thinks, if you're going to have a lie, why not fall through on the lie, right? Why have it so shallow and kind of meaningless? And, you know, he's frustrated that he's, his official title is like a weapons fashion designer, not like a weapons developer, right? So he sort of wants to make real weapons or make something that's more meaningful. So he sees his job as kind of pointless. And even though he's rich and famous and powerful, he's very bored with his life. And he's basically got two kind of hobbies. One, he has a fairly intelligent mistress named named Marin. And the other thing he's obsessed with is his counterpart in Peeps East, a woman named Lilo 
Topchev, Miss Lilo Topchev, and she's a young woman, and he kind of has spy agencies given pictures of her, and he's, he's got a kind of obsession with her, and their paths are going to cross in the course of the novel. So, <clears throat> now with this broader social order we learn, we, that we learn about in chapter one, we learn that there's a very much a top-down structure, and it's like in the simulacrum, and to a degree like in the penultimate truth, it's based on knowledge. And where you are in the social hierarchy has a lot to do with how much you know about the truth. And the two main groups are the cogs, right? The symbolism here of the, being the ones who actually run the machine. The cogs are the important people. And the people down below are called the persaps, pure saps. That's a, it's a new speak for pure saps. Um, now, there's not a lot of work to be done. It's another post-scarcity kind of world that we're... We, were given where a lot of people are sort of on the dole, they don't really have a good job or their jobs are kind of the bullshit jobs that David Graeber talks about and a lot of work is automated. So there's, uh, with that class, with that potential to break down the class structure, Dick often shows there's new ways to form class divisions based on knowledge, you know, in a knowledge economy. And, and, you know, he simplifies it by having a specific piece of knowledge that people seem to know or have access to. And that's what the COGS have. The COGS know about this whole, the fakeness of, of this weapons development program. Meanwhile, the PERSAPs tend to actually almost be fascinated by it. We're going to meet a character who's like a typical right-wing, nativist, racist, kind of hillbilly type of character. And he knows everything about weapons. He's obsessed with them. He's, you can imagine he's got books and books about weapons. And it's kind of funny because none of these weapons are real. They're, they're just actually reproductions uh, using modern technology of like comic book fads from the from the 60s one other bit about the government we learned about in the first chapter is cock keys or k-a-c-h cock this is like the secret spy agency for um for the west and they're in constant contact with lars powder dry giving him information and you know lars is very important to the government and everything so they're he's in contact with these Kochmen. They seem to have their own agenda and they're, they're doing their own thing on the, on the side, but they're, they're in communicate with them, communication with them. And a cocked man comes to give Lars a picture of Lilo Topchev. So this is this woman he's increasingly becoming more and more obsessed with early in the novel. And this is a, partially a distraction for his just the boredom he's feeling in his life. Now, as chapter one ends, we're reminded of just how bored and frustrated Lars is. Quote, seating himself, Lars lit a custode Astoria and did not ins inspect. He felt his wits become turgid and the cigar did not help. He did not enjoy snooping dog-like over spy-obtained pics of the output of his peep-eats equivalent, Miss Topchef. Let UNW and take do the analysis. He had so much to say to this general nits on several occasions. Once at a meeting of his total board, with everyone present, sucked within his most dignified and stately press arms. His prestige caps, mitters, boots, gloves, probably spider silk underwear with the ominous slogans and yuska stitched in the multicolored thread. There in that solemn environment with the burden of Atlas on the backs of even the comcodities, these six drafted involuntary fools in formal session. Lars had mildly asked that for Christ's sake, couldn't they do the analysis of the enemy's weapons? No, and without debate, because, listen closely, Mr. Lars, these are not Peep East weapons. These are his plans for weapons. We will evaluate them when they pass from the prototype to autofact production. End quote. Um, so he wants a real job. He wants to actually 
be engaged in spy versus spy stuff. He actually wants to use his trans states to steal weapons from people's east. He wants to take these schematics and break them down to get a one-up. He wants to win this Cold War. He doesn't want it just to be a game. And that's the heart of his, his ennui uh, early, in the, early in the novel. Chapter 2 is just an extension of this scene where we see Lars talking with these Kochmen over uh, this picture of Lilo Topchev. And he's sort of as coy about being disinterested in her, but deep down he actually does have an interest in her. She's very young and in typical PKD fashion, beautiful and, and, and fairly attractive and, and intelligent. So uh, the kind of person Lars Partedry would need to kind of awaken him a little bit. He gets a call from Marin, his mistress. So that's his other main outlet um, in this part of, of the novel. And then at the, at the end of chapter two, he just goes into this trance state where he, you know, he's going to go and try to find these weapons designs. Now, as he goes into this trance at the end, there's a little bit of of kind of philosophy here that, that's, that's useful for breakdown because Dick is trying to do something with these trance states. Are they reality? Are they some kind of super reality that he's entering into? Um, it all becomes fairly banal by the end of the novel in, in a very interesting way. But... Uh, Lars doesn't really know that now. So here's what we get. He rolled the portable EEG machine forward. The preliminaries to the day's trance state in which he lost contact with the given shared universe, the Coinus Cosmos, and involvement with that other mystifying realm, apparently an Idios Cosmos, a purely private world began, but a purely private world in which in, in Astestis Coine, a common, something dwelt. What a way, Lars thought, to earn a living, end quote. So what we have here is these, these concepts of, of cosmos and, and koinos uh, being played with. So there's, of course, the common shared reality, right? And then there's like the private subjective delusion. We've seen this so many times in Dick's fiction. It's certainly there in, in Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldritch. It's there in The Unteleported Man, or at least Lies, Inc., that, 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 the added stuff of Lies, Inc., right? And the... In fact, in most of his false fronts, even the ones that are more politically motivated, there's the experience of, of people that are, are usually more subjective, usually the people from the top, and then the shared delusion. Uh, you see it in Faith of Our Fathers, too, published in 1968, which we'll, we'll talk about soon. So that's, that's the two. But within this per-private world that he enters, there is something, a common something that... that he's able to experience, right? And it turns out it's something he sort of is able to share with, with Lilo Topchev as well. Okay, chapter three. In chapter three, we, we, we change scenes and we meet Shirley G. Febs. Shirley G. Febs um, is an interesting guy. He's, he's a, he's an authority on weapons. He, he, he sells loans. That's his job. He's, he's got kind of a, a worthless job. He doesn't like his job. He's not happy with it. He sells loans. He, he regrets his job. He resents it. And one way he gets back at his boss is by um, like giving people bad loans that he knows they're not going to pay off. Um, but he spends most of his free time studying weapons. And he's obsessed with weapons. He's like, he's like a right-wing survivalist kind of kooky figure. And he's racist. He's involved in racist organizations. He's nativist. And he's just obsessed with war. And, and weapons. Well, we learned that right away. 
because as the chapter opens, he gets a notice from the government that he's been selected as a con comedy because his purchasing habits are the most typical. You know, I guess it's six. I said before five. There's six of them, and he's been chosen. And he thinks he thinks immediately that he's not chosen really because he's the most typical, but because he knows more about weapons. Quote, it's because I know all about the weapons and authority. That's what he was due to all the hours, six or seven at night, because he liked, like everyone else in his work, he'd recently cut from 20 to 19 hours per week that he spent scanning edutapes at the Boise, Idaho main branch of the public library. And not only was he an authority on weapons, he could remember with absolute clarity every fact he'd ever learned as an example on the manufacture of red stained glass in France in the early 13th century. I know the exact part of the Byzantine Empire from which the mosaics of the Roman period, which they have melted down to form the chairs red glass came from, he said to himself. It was about time that someone with universal knowledge like himself got on the UNW NATSEC board instead of the usual morons, the mass perslaps who read nothing but the headlines of the homeopapes, and naturally nothing but the headlines of the homeopapes, and naturally the sports and animated cartoon strips, and of course the dirty stuff about sex, and otherwise poison the empty minds of the toxic mass-produced garbage which they were deliberately producing by the large corporations. End quote. He's also a conspiracy theorist. He believes in all these, you know, that there's people behind the scenes pulling the strings. Now, in a Philip Dick world, he's right. There are conspiracies in Philip Dick's world. So um, CT has an entirely different meaning in Dick's universe than I think in our own, where it does seem to be associated with often right-wing delusions. Um, but, you know, it's, it's here. But even this character, though, he's, he's that typical later 20th century you know kind of gun nut that that's how he's presented here and this allows him to feel really good about himself he he's very he's a very vocal guy he's trying to move up in this racist organization he's a member of he writes letters to the editor he writes letters to the senators he's trying to push his conspiracy theory more broadly um, he also thinks he's great he's a bit power hungry he's very excited to become uncomedy because he thinks he can dominate the other six maybe take over the whole thing for himself um, but at the end he knows his job is to plowshare he says when a weapon component is the last put before me officially he thought with grim assurance i'll know how to plowshare it all right they count on me i'll come up with a half a dozen ways to plowshare and all of them good based on my knowledge and skill so he's got a bit dreams of grandeur, but he doesn't really have a radical vision of doing anything different. He just wants to climb up the, the hierarchy. You'd think he'd be like Lars Powder Dry and want to use these weapons actually for war, but that doesn't seem to, to be the case. He calls his boss after he gets this notice and quits. And he doesn't really say why he quits. He just says, you know, you don't need me anymore. And he, he's, it's kind of one of those, um, those times you quit when you, you kind of do so and you stick it to your boss a little bit. He later on gets a call from the government saying, you know, follow up. Have you get to notice your commodity? But they're also warned that since your identity is supposed to be a secret, you can't tell anyone. And then we learn for the first time that Shirley Febbs isn't as bright as he thinks he is because he doesn't remember if he told his boss. He doesn't remember if he told his boss if, if the reason he's quitting. And he's a bit worried that he's going to lose his chance to be a commodity because of the because of telling his boss, maybe even be punished more severely. So chapter four, we, we move to back to Lars Powder Dry, and he's going to talk with a guy, guy named, uh, what's his name? Peter Freed at Langferman Associates of San Francisco in LA. This is the firm that makes the prototype weapons based on his 
designs. So it's kind of, he's the designer, these are the manufacturers, right? And he's reminded of something he sort of already knows and has been bothered by is that his job's kind of useless and it doesn't really have a broader function. In fact, this guy Freed says, if you have this ability to pull this stuff out of the cloud essentially and bring it to us, you know, weapons designs, why can't you use this for more important things? He says, like, you should be working like in, you know, high tech you know, science outfits and things, learning truth. And this just seems to stick home to him how, how depressed he really is about his, his place in the world. And this chapter really starts to settle in a discussion about truth and about the perceps and about the nature of the lie and how pleasurable it is for the perceps to be told that they're safe and that these weapons have, have meaning. Freed says to him, don't you get it? Even if you had looked in that TV lens right in the eye, so to speak, and you had said calmly and clearly, maybe something like this, you think I'm making weapons? You think that's what I'm bringing back from hyperspace, from those nitty-nod realms of the supernatural? End quote. You know, he's basically saying that, you know, this false front is sustained as much by the desire of the percepts to believe than by any kind of machinations by the government. That only bothers Lars more because Lars says, you know, if a lie is worth keeping is worth like really f firming up, right? And this is actually one of the, the weakest lies by government in any of Dick's fiction. And it's, I think Dick's moving to kind of a more pessimistic place here. In the penultimate truth, it has to be enshrined, it has to be enforced. In the simulacrum, it's enforced quite vigorously too. Here, it, it's, it's just because the people want to believe it. That's the only reason this, this facade is hold, holding up. So then to help Lars kind of get out of his malaise, he offers him, you know, he says, let's go get a cup of coffee. Um, and that's what they do in chapter five. So, so Peter and Lars just go to a coffee shop and they run into this journalist who tried to interview Lars earlier, a woman named Mrs. Bedouin. And they, they troll her a little bit. There's, you know, Lars doesn't think much of her. He, she thinks she's just kind of continuing this this she just feeds the perceps what they want to hear and he compares the media to the medieval fool quote but i could be candid too he thought if i didn't know anything i see no particular merit in that since medieval times a fool no offense to you miss bedouin has been permitted the liberty of wagging his tongue but suppose just for one moment as we sit together in this booth, the three of us, two cog males and one dainty silver tip persap girl whose cardinal preoccupation resides in the perpetual concerns of her admittedly lovely little pointed breasts, be as conspicuous as possible. And suppose we could cheerfully pass back and forth as you do. Sorry. Do without the need to sharply split what I know from what I say. The wound would be healed, he decided. No more pills, no more nights of being unable or unwilling to sleep. And that's, yeah, that's the, the conversation. And he's just trying to uh, troll her and, and torment her a little bit. Uh, and then an old man arrives to the coffee shop. And Lars figures out pretty soon that this guy is some kind of Soviet agent or some kind of agent from Peep East. He asks a series of questions. Miss Bedouin is kind of oblivious to all of that's going on, but, but Lars figures it out pretty quick. And he starts to ask, <clears throat> he starts to ask about a specific weapons plan, weapons design that Lar Lars Powder Dry was, was working on, that somehow they got a hold of this. And they want to follow up and find out what they can about it. They, he has a specific question. 
And it's a specific line in one of the designs called an evolution gun. And this, you know, has frightened him or bothered him so much that he's actually breaking protocol and breaking even laws to approach Lars Powder Drive publicly like this. Now, this guy's main name is Axel Kamish, and he's a, he's a PPS agent. Now, internally, he's able to admit to himself that the evolution gum is just like something he wrote on this plan. I mean, there's nothing really behind it. Like with a lot of these, these weapons designs, there's not that much there. It's just there to fool the percepts. Um, now, after Kaminsky leaves, uh, Lars thinks about what this weapon is. Item, quote, item 265 is as successful as anything I've ever produced and ever will produce. The evolution gun, which should turn every living, sentient, highly organized life form within a five mile radius back, two billion years devolved to the most remote past, articulated morphological structures, should give way to something resembling an amoeba, a slime lacking a spine, fin, something unicellular on the order of a filterable protein molecule. And this, the audience of Perseps watching the six o'clock news roundup on TV will see because it will happen in a sense. In that fake heap on fake, they'll be staged before the variety of cameras. All the Perseps can go to bed happy knowing that their lives and the lives of their kids are, are, sorry, are protected by Thor's hammer from the enemy. That is from Peep East, which is also mightily testing the disaster producing terwips of havoc. And they, they call the, you know, in this conversation between Pete and Lars, Lars eventually compares them to the priests of ancient Egypt, you know, that they're almost a priest class that are just there to appease the masses, you know, almost quite a, kind of a quasi-religious role. So that's chapter five, just this uh, coffee shop, which has this odd encounter with uh, the with, uh, Soviet spy who's obsessed with this idea of an evolution gun and thinking like the percepts I guess that this is a real threat something he has to be bothered by So chapters six and seven are, are Just like a date night with Lars and, and Marin and I think chapter six is them getting ready and then chapter seven is is at dinner time or, or Maybe they're having dinner at Maris's apartment in Paris and they just talk about different things, mostly about Lars's malaise. So he's, he's seeking out advice from someone else. So he's first trying to get advice from, from Pete, and now he's trying to get advice from, from Marin. Um, Pete's, Pete's, advice, Pete's advice is a little bit more practical in that, you know, kind of work in the system and, and, and get pleasure how you can. Marin's advice is a little bit more Promethean, urging him to, to do something more more dramatic and more bold, maybe even venture into, into flexing his political muscles a little bit as a way to keep himself interested in his, his job. It's in this chapter, though, in this conversation, especially in chapter seven, where Marin and Lars are talking, and Lars gets very, very close to, act, to coming out and saying that he really wants to make real weapons, real weapons of war. Quote, this is, this is actually Lars speaking. By believing that it is time that those who claim to be making machines to kill and maim and lay waste ought to have the ethical integrity to really make machines that kill and maim and lay waste instead of machines that constitute an elaborate pretext to finally bring forth a non-entity, a decadent novelty such as, your, such as yourself. Now, while they're at this dinner, Marin shows him this, this plowshare device. You know, some one of these consumer devices that actually came from one of his weapon sketches that was plowed shared by a commodity. It's called 
it's an Orville, it's called, and the Orville can be asked questions. And it's it's not quite like a, a 20 questions kind of game. Instead, it's a it's something that, based on your questions and the way you, you ask the questions and what I can find out about you, it's able to kind of psychoanalyze you and give you some, some feedback. So at first, Lars doesn't take it seriously and just treats it like a toy and asks some jokey questions, but Marin encourages him to, to finally take it serious. And then it gets into some really deep, profound stuff, even comparing him to, to the, the Wanderer in, in Siegfried, Wagner's opera. And, you know, Lars is actually pretty shocked that it's able to get so so deep. And he actually like, asks, are the percepts actually like this kind of thing? Why would they want to buy it? And Marin says, well, they just ask it stupid, silly questions, you know, like, you know, whatever, day-to-day, run-of-the-mill, jokey questions, um, quote, dumb gag type questions. Um, but it has this potential to, to do more. And there's like a theme here that the plowshare devices don't have to be, you know, tacky trinkets they can be something more meaningful right and you know I, I think there's kind of an ongoing debate here between like kind of like the value of a consumer economy which dick criticizes but he also criticizes the military industrial complex so if you don't have either i mean really what does your economy produce it's either producing weapons of war and that kind of stuff or it's it's creating stuff for just people to to mess around with i guess a third path we could take is to try to live more sustainably you know, reduce our work hours and, you know, live more simply, make more of our own stuff, whatever. I think Dick would probably like that. We'll talk about that stuff when we get to Galactic Pot Healer. Um, but the Orville does show that creativity is able to come out of this plowsharing process. And actually, fairly interesting devices. But this doesn't, you know, talking with this Orville doesn't really help him out of his midlife crisis. We wouldn't expect it to. And then Marin gives him this idea that, why don't you, so this spy encountered you, right? So why don't you play with that? Why don't you see where that goes? Why don't you reach out to this Kaminsky guy, this guy who approached you in the diner, the coffee shop, find him out, see what you can find out about Ms. Topchek, you know, and get a better picture of Ms. Topchev. And maybe there's something interesting he can do with his life if he follows that path. Do something different, right? So that's, that's her advice to him. And he, and he starts to go for this uh, Quote, Lars thought, and I, and I heard the firm, I employ this woman, obviously in another year, and me with psychological problems already, but I have the talent, the psionic ability, so I can stay on top. He felt the unsustainability of his overall prowess, however, in confrontation with this woman, his mistress. Now that she had proposed so quaintly phrased, too, the deal with Kaminsky, it all seemed so obvious, and yet insanely, he would never have conjured it up in his own incredible, and it would work, end quote. So basically, she pushes him to go... To shoot for political power using his ability and maybe using his contacts, the people who seem to know about him in Peep East. Um, and then chapter eight, that's the last one I'm going to talk about in this episode. This is roughly the first quarter of the, of the novel. Um, we're back with Jack and Lars together. I, this is like a later day. And they're seeing one of these new weapons tried out. Um, it's called the Psychic Conversion Beam. And it appears to be tried out on real people. So what the percepts see when they turn on the TV and a new weapon is announced is this weapon actually being used like on criminals. But they're not real criminals. They're just androids who are playing a part. And they get mowed down by this weapon, which isn't a real weapon. And this is all just the propaganda of, of new weapons. Not even the people, the victims of it are, are real. So you see how this kind of the propaganda side of this of this weapons development plowsharing process takes place. 
And Jack says something really important here about the whole way this, this works. Um, quote, but 278 exists. The percepts knows it, and when he sees it used on an uglier life form than he, he thinks, hey, maybe they passed me by. Maybe because these fellows are really bad, those pee-peats bastards, 278 isn't going to get pointed at me, and I can go to my grave later on. Not this year, but say 50 years from now, which means, and this is the crux, Lars, he does not need to worry about his own death right now. He can pretend he will never die. End quote. And isn't this how Dick sees the Cold War as a whole, right? Where there was all this threat of, of death, but because of propaganda, the propaganda that your country's rich and powerful and well-armed and prepared for war, then the thought is that war will never come to me, right? We'll fight people in Vietnam or something and they'll die, but we're not going to die here, right? We'll be safe and secure, right? The only thing that Dick really adds here is by making the whole thing a facade, right? And apparently the threat of Peep East is also a facade. There's really no danger here. And this chapter ends with the discussion of, of a universal weapon. And why not just go to the logical conclusion and make a universal weapon, a weapon that can eradicate the enemy or eradicate the whole world, for that matter. And it, this is kind of maybe what we're thinking. Like the Cold War was about building bigger and bigger nukes, right? And eventually the nuke that can destroy the world. Dick even wrote a story about this called The Novel, about how the the path of progressively building better and better weapons will eventually lead to a bomb that can destroy potentially the whole universe. Why not just go there and, and be done with it? And instead, it seems they're, they're building weapons that are personal. Of course, we find out later on they're being drawn from essentially comic books. So they're like, they're literally zap guns. They're, they're that kind of thing. Why do it? Why go to the personal? And it's because that's something you can build off of and develop from. The universal weapon kind of ends the game. So um, that's, that's it. In the first quarter of this novel, we learn a lot about the central uh, theme of the novel. And, you know, in a way, you know, you could just read this and I think have a very interesting discussion about the nature of weapons development, the nature of the military industrial complex, its relationship with real war and its relationship with, with the propaganda of, of security in, in, the, in the Cold War environment. Um, now, later in the novel, we're going to learn that, you know, there's actually going to be a need for a weapon. And that's going to be the main plot in this, in, as we get into the second half of the novel. Also, we're going to learn more about the kind of the consumer side of it. And there's going to be very interesting things that Dick explores in that aspect of it. But I'm going to sign off for now. Um, so if you're reading along, we read chapters one through eight of the Zap Gun. In the, I'm not sure how far we'll go for the next episode, but we'll get to like the halfway point of the novel. This, this particular book has a lot of shorter chapters. Pretty atypical for Dick. Dick's chapters, books are usually like 14, 16 chapters or so. And they're all about the same length. This one's a little bit uh, more subdivided, but it's not a longer novel than any of the, other, uh, any of the others. If you haven't read The Zap Gun, I urge you to pick it up. It's really a good one. I, I think it should be more appreciated. Um, I have a hard time kind of ranking these, and I know from the sound of it, I probably like all of them. But this one in particular, I, I come back to a lot because it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's got some interesting commentary, I think, on, on just the nature of war and the use of war in, you know, in how war can actually make people feel secure. And then, of course, the, the aspect of, of consumerism. So leave your own thoughts below or you can send me an email like, like Richard does from time to time at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will we'll see you next time with, with part two of my thoughts on the zap gun. Oh,
Contentment forever If you're 